Remember pop quizzes in school? Weren't those fun? I have one for you this morning. And that quiz is simple. Every week I send out a weekly email telling you, usually on Friday, what's coming up on Sunday and particularly giving you the passage of scripture I'm going to be teaching from so that you can read ahead. Two question pop quiz. The chapter was? Okay, that was wildly discouraging to me. Uh, It was, if you're not receiving that email and you'd like to, let us know on the card. Clearly we need some help. Um, The passage was Matthew 1. Here's the second and the hardest part of the pop quiz. How many of you read Matthew chapter 1? All right, better than, better than anticipated, wonderful. A third bonus question. Did you read the genealogy? Honesty time now. Did you skim the genealogy? I'm willing to bet my kids Christmas presents. Not my own, you understand, but, but certainly theirs. That some skimming happened as you came to this seemingly endless list of hard-to-pronounce names. I was in a Bible study a few weeks ago, and this has happened over and over again. We came to some of these difficult Hebrew names, and the reader says, and that guy, or girl, not sure, and that name I can't pronounce begat this other name I can't pronounce. I bet some skimming happened. It reads like fine print, doesn't it? It reads like fine print in a contract or a licensing agreement. And if you know anything about insurance or contracts, you know that fine print is usually where hope goes to die. You've paid your premium on your insurance for years and years and years, and you finally need something, and they tell you that on page 48, toward the bottom in the 17th paragraph, it says... That you can only receive that benefit if you report the event within four hours of it happening on a month that has the letter R in it. So sorry, sir, we can't cover. (laughs) They call those, lawyers call those terms and conditions. They're printed in fine print for a reason. Apple Computer Company deliberately prints their licensing agreement in all caps because they know it's harder to read and you've never read it. You put that software on and you click agree and who knows what you've just done, okay? They may be coming for your firstborn as far as you know because fine print, generally speaking, is where hope goes to die. Not in the Bible. There is no fine print in the Bible. There are some parts that seem tedious and difficult and aren't immediately, it's hard to see immediately what their point is, such is the case of a genealogy. Read with me now, and let's look into Matthew chapter 1, because I'm going to try to show you that even in the so-called fine print, when God speaks to us, there is hope woven into every bit of his word. Hope is hidden even in the fine print. Matthew is writing, as a Jewish believer in Jesus, is writing a very Jewish gospel. 
If you've read it, you're going to know that as he narrates the historical life of Jesus, he's going to continually say this happened to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet when he said, and he'll quote Isaiah, for instance, 700 years earlier. And he's going to walk you through the life of Jesus as an eyewitness to that life, telling you at different points, this mile marker, this event, these words, this miracle, this sermon was given in direct fulfillment of something that was promised centuries ago. And because Matthew is Jewish and his gospel is so Jewish and he is writing primarily to his fellow Jews in the first century, he begins the story of Jesus with a genealogy. Matthew 1 verse 1 says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ the son of David, the son of Abraham. Immediately, he connects Jesus to his Jewishness. He ties him in to the royal line of David, which begins, as every Jew knows, begins with the promise that was first made to their father, their ancestor, Abraham, to whom it was said he would be a blessing. His Seed, his family would be a blessing to every tribe, clan, and nation on earth. And then begins this seemingly very dry recitation in three movements of the history of the Jews. And it's Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And shortly after that, the skimming starts. Those first names are familiar, but then they grow increasingly obscure. I want to tell you why this starts with the genealogy. Why would Matthew do this? Well, first of all, most obviously, Matthew includes the genealogy of Jesus, first of all, to provide historical legitimacy. He wants to anchor Jesus to the promises that God has made. He wants to show that God's promise has been kept. And generally speaking... We speak of our genealogies because we want to show our family's virtue, right? I've met people in the South who are very, very proud of their lineage. And they'll talk about, you know, my ancestors were at Gettysburg. I've met people who talk about their ancestry going all the way back to the Mayflower. We were original Americans. And we generally pad our genealogies, or if we don't make stuff up, but we generally highlight the people who have served the family well and kind of put the name up there in lights. We don't mention the horse thieves, right? We don't mention those who would be suitable guests for Jerry Springer. Those people tend to get overlooked. And that's what's so interesting about Matthew's genealogy. See, when he comes to the end of it, He tells us in verse 17, So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Seven is considered a number of completion and perfection. Fourteen is double that. There's some Jewish nuance there, too. And you think, well, isn't this interesting? It's 14, 14, 14. Can I tell you the most surprising thing about this genealogy? It's selective. In other words, this is tracing ancestors, not necessarily parents and children. Sometimes there's a lot of time between two names that appear on the page together. And if this genealogy were like my genealogy, 
I might tell you my pedigree, such as it is, frankly, I don't, I mention horse thieves for a reason. That's actually part of our family history on at least one side that we're aware of that will admit to who they were and what kind of people they were back in those days. This genealogy is selective, but as I'm going to show you, there's some surprising names there. And there's some very sad stories. And there's some very dark moments. The most surprising thing in this genealogy is that four women's names appear in it before Mary is mentioned. This is not very much a Jewish thing to do. A genealogy is normally traced as Matthew began and summarized his through the men, through the fathers, Jesus Christ, David, and Abraham. Now we're talking. Jesus, who was called the Christ, in other words, the one that was promised to us, the one that was sent to us as a fulfillment of God's promise. He is the son of David. And David, if you trace it back all the way to the beginning, was the son of Abraham. This is the one we've been waiting for. But as you keep reading, you find some not only obscure names, but now some female names. And they're not obscure. They're well known. And in a few of these cases, they're notorious. Tamar is the first woman mentioned in this genealogy. It says in verse 3, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Her story is found in Genesis 38. It is one of the grittiest things you'll ever read in your life. It's actually a very sad story. In plain English, it's a dirty story. She was a Gentile. She had married into her father-in-law, Judah's family. But she was widowed. And without giving you too much cultural background, her father-in-law was ignoring her and leaving her in a place of shame and destitution without a husband to protect and provide for her. So she, it tells us in Genesis 38, knowing that Judah... One of the original men who gave his name to the tribe from whom we take the title of Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Judah had this thing for prostitutes. And he would travel down roads and he would find what could be called a temple prostitute or a shrine prostitute, a woman who was there on the road selling herself in pagan worship to a false god. And when he would see these women, he had the custom of going into them. Tamar, Genesis 38, tells us in plain, unblushing, unvarnished language, veiled herself and her father-in-law on a trip, thinking she was a prostitute, went in and paid and slept with her. She became pregnant. When he got the word, he said, burn her. She gave what he had given her in payment and said as much as this, the children that are in me came from this man. And Judah, the one who gave his name to the tribe of the lion of the true tribe of Judah, said she's more righteous than I, leave her alone. That's Tamar's story. Genesis 38. Another name appears. Rahab. You remember the story of Rahab? Rahab was a prostitute in a foreign city. Tamar posed as one in desperation. Rahab actually was a prostitute. 
known for her harlotry, remembered in Scripture in those words. She lived in the pagan city of Jericho, but she gave shelter to the spies that God had sent into the promised land. And we're told that her name appears in the genealogy. She also was part of Jesus' story. Then finally comes a woman with whom we're very familiar. Her name is Ruth. There's a whole book in the Bible that bears her name. She was a woman that said to her mother-in-law when she was widowed herself, I'll go where you go and your God will be my God. She is a woman of faith, but she comes from the tribe of Moab. And if you read deep enough into your Bible history, you'll discover that the tribe of Moab was started from the incestuous relationship of a father and daughter. And God in judgment said in Deuteronomy that no one from the tribe of Moab would be welcome in his presence for ten generations. So great was the shame of the tribe of Moab. Then finally we're told, as we continue reading this genealogy, we continue reading this fine print. A woman is referenced but is not named. The genealogy simply says, Uriah's wife. Uriah had a wife. She is not mentioned. He is mentioned. His nation is mentioned. He is Uriah the Hittite. Here's another foreigner, in other words, in the middle of this Jewish genealogy. And it's selective writing, but it doesn't seem to be selected in the slightest to give any appearance of virtue. On the contrary, Matthew seems to be going out of his way to weave through the story of Jesus some very sad, tragic, deeply embarrassing, shameful moments in the lineage of Jesus. Who was Uriah? Uriah was one of King David's special soldiers. He was a man so close to him that Uriah was out fighting on a day when David should have been out on the field, but he had stayed home. And he was up on the palace rooftop looking down over his city and he saw his soldier's wife. And he desired her. And using all of his kingly authority, he summoned her to the palace and slept with her. And she was pregnant. And David thought to himself, I'm caught. Her husband is off fighting my battles. There's no way this won't be found out. He's going to be so upset. Let's bring him home. And David tried everything, including getting this man drunk, to get him to go home and sleep with his wife to cover his shame, cover his sin, cover his dishonor. But Uriah was a better soldier than David was a king that day. And he said, King, I can't go in and enjoy the comfort of my wife and my home while my men are in the field. And he slept in the stables. David felt he had no choice. He sent Uriah back to the battlefield with sealed orders. And Uriah didn't know it, but he was a soldier carrying his own death warrant. He told his general, Joab, you put him in the thick of the fighting, and when it's really, really hot, the rest of you fall back without warning. It was murder. And Joab sent the message back, and he said, we've lost Uriah. And David cynically sent a message of his own saying, don't be discouraged. The, sin, the sword kills one just as easily it kills the other. The genealogy of Jesus doesn't mention her name 
it actually goes out of its way to say that in the line of Jesus, this royal kingly line by which God kept his promises, a woman who was, in today's language, we would say she was raped. She was brought into a sexual relationship under color, not only of authority, but kingly authority. She would have a case today. And then her husband, one of David's special forces soldiers, was murdered to kill up the event. Why is this here? There's nothing good in these stories. What there is, is shame. What there is, is separation. Most of the women mentioned here are Gentiles. They did not appear to be according to common understanding within the scope of God's promises. The common Jewish understanding is that God is for us and he hates everybody else. There's hope for us, but if they want to have any kind of hope, they must be just as we are. And in these stories, in the women's stories, in everyone, even godly, righteous Ruth, there is hopelessness. Because these all picture women without any resources of their own. They all picture women that could not find their way out. Why is this here? Because God wants you to know that the reason Jesus came is this. Sin doesn't cancel God's promise. A lot of you bear probably some religious burdens... And though you've trusted Jesus, you continually make your way through life wondering if you're good enough. Feeling separation from God when you should feel none. Feeling hopelessness when God has spoken hope to you. You need to know from this very selective fine print genealogy of the life of Jesus, sin doesn't cancel God's promise. In fact, the, re the, the actual truth of the matter is that's why Jesus came. As we continue reading, and once we emerge from the genealogy, we're told in Matthew 1.21, that context, the name of another woman. Now appears Mary, a woman who was righteous and trusted God from the very first moment, but bore her own stigma because she had this miraculous event where she had a child born from her before she ever knew a man. Mary carried around those whispers. Those whispers surrounded her her whole life. Why does the fifth woman appear in the story of the genealogy of Jesus? So that this promise could be fulfilled. Speaking of Mary, the Bible says, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from what? From their sins. See, the beautiful grace of Jesus appears more brightly like a diamond against black velvet once you see the depth of sin that's found even within the earthly line of Jesus Christ. There's not one person in this genealogy, there's not one person on earth who can claim enough historical legitimacy, who can claim enough personal or family virtue to ever approach God on their own terms. So if you're feeling hopeless this morning, understand why the Bible tells these stories. 
understand that it's telling you the depth of human depravity. It's telling the worst things that people can do. It's telling you stories that probably made a few of you cringe. And you might have even thought, I can't believe I'm hearing this in church. It's in God's word because he pulls no punches. He tells the truth about ourselves. And the only people who are truly hopeless in God's story are those who are too self-righteous to acknowledge their sin and come to him as Savior. That's why these stories are mentioned. Sin is the reason for the Savior. So the things that make you weighed down, that make you feel hopeless, that make you feel shame, the besetting sin that you cannot seem to escape, those things that you whether deeds or thoughts that you've struggled with all week that seem to put such a barrier between you and God that seem to make you ashamed to pick up your Bible, that make you pray and wonder if anybody's listening and how he could listen to you for one more minute knowing who you are. Listen, it's grace, it's hope, it's God's love, it's his righteousness, it's his love, it's his sacrifice, it's his goodness. That's why Mary bore the child because he, not us, he would save people from their sins. If your family history looks a little bit like these notorious stories in the genealogy of Jesus, there's hope for you. If your sins are much smaller and seemingly more respectable, there's hope for you too. Don't be confused and think to yourself that you're doing well enough. Everybody in this genealogy, that's its point. Everyone from Abraham to King David through the obscure people who we only know because their name is mentioned here, all of those people are in need of a Savior. So is our community. This is the good news that we preach day in, day out. When we gather as a church and when we scatter as a church, we bear the news of a Savior who came because of sin who was not deterred, put off, appalled by it. Rather, he came right in the middle of it, became a man as we are, born of a woman who came herself out of a sin-stained line, the righteous, only perfect, pure Son of God, to enter into our experience with all of its grittiness and all of its rated R parts and all of the shameful things that would never make it into your own personal family history. He came to bear every single bit of it so that you and I could be saved. That's hope. It's not you and me. It's not us doing better. It's not you having better New Year's resolutions and following through on them. It's Jesus, the one who will save his people from their sins. Would you pray with me, please? Can I give you a minute just between you and the Lord to think carefully about your own life situation? See, what almost everybody in the world I know is trying to do is prop themselves up and be good enough. It won't work. You can't be good enough for a perfect, holy God. But if you'll be humble, if you'll say, Jesus, you came to save me from my sins, my family history, my own life, my thoughts, my heart are a mess too. You came to save me from all of that. He will. That's why he came. Sin could not keep him away. Sin is the reason for the Savior. 
So if you've never trusted Jesus, could I personally invite you to do so right now? I'm not talking to you about joining this church. That might be a good idea later. But I'm talking to you about the most important thought that ever enters a human's mind. What will I do with Jesus? If you'll trust him, if you'll say, Jesus, save me. My sin is before me. It's on my conscience. Save me from it. Do what you came to do. Save me. He will. He did it for me. He's done it for countless millions of others. Jews and Gentiles. Respectable people and notorious people. He came to save people from their sin. And if you've been following him for a long time, maybe for you and me, the best part is to remember this is the grace that sustains us. We don't have to keep trying harder. We have to trust him as the great savior of the world who came to save us from our sins too. If you need to trust Jesus this morning, do it. Call out to him with your own words and say, Jesus, I believe, please save me. I'm sorry for my sin, save me. And I would only ask you that you let us know that you've done that. Before you leave today, you can use that card. You can tell me, you can tell someone at prayer over here by the cross to my right after the service. But let us know what you've done. We want to help you follow Jesus. Lord, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for grace. Thank you that sin could not keep you away, Lord, but rather... Your love of sinners compelled you to come so that every kind of scandalous, shameful, we would never tell it to our kids kinds of sin could be erased, washed clean, and sinners could receive hope rather than judgment. We thank you for that, Lord. We love you. And the decisions that are being now, Lord, being made now to rest in your grace, to trust you, Lord, for the first time in life, I pray that you would show yourself the big, strong, all-sufficient Savior that you are and meet everyone today according to their need. We ask this, Lord, in your name. Amen. Thanks so much for joining us on this edition of Cross Points. If you have any questions about what you just heard, please call our church office at 714-848-5511. If you are nearby next Sunday, we have services at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Visitors are always welcome at Crosspoint, and we hope you'll choose to worship with us when you're near the Huntington Beach community.